Welcome to Full Release with Samantha B. Hopefully, you'll experience one by the end of this. Okay, listeners, I need you to pause this podcast right now. Make sure you've ordered all the holiday gifts you need because it's almost too late. I don't want you to get stuck paying for overnight shipping. Just don't say I didn't warn you. Look, this week and every week, we hope to get away from the madness of the world for an hour or at least look at the madness of the world through a different lens. I mean, like it's just a podcast. I can solve most of your problems, not 100% of them. I'm joined, as always, by my producers, it's Via Baron Reinstein and Adam Howard. Okay, podcast gals, on today's show, we are joined by the host of Crooked Media's Unholier Than Thou podcast, Philip McCarty. Philip left his high-powered magazine career to go back to school at Harvard's Divinity School. If you left your jobs, and please do not do that, what would you go? What would you go back to school for? <laughs> I used to have that nightmare a lot, where I would oh, think yeah. I, I'd, I'd wake up and be like, "I'm still in school," and as a paper do, <laughs> it was so do. weird. And I didn't oh, like yeah. hate being in school, but it's not a good feeling. Um, so I would never do this. Um, I think the smart answer is to say, you know, tech or something. But if I'm being really honest, yeah. I would say uh, theater because I always mm. was interested oh. in acting. And mm-hmm. thankfully, I've gotten to do little things on the show, which I'm very grateful for. But um, yeah, I think I, if I had it to do all over again, I would have just sort of taken that chance. I think I got very hung up oh. on the whole uh, headshot thing. I was like, oh, people are going to just like look at my photo and say no to me. <laughs> oh. That really upset me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but I look back now and I'm like, oh, like I, w- I would have enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, that was, that's my answer. And you do get to have like at least, you know, you just have a lineup of headshots that show you how you have evolved (laughs) through the years, (laughs) different moods, but also they're always just like to a person. They're so awful and don't reflect who you are at at any stage of your life. (laughs) I have some where I'm like, I don't know why I curled my hair for this. <laughs> I don't have curly hair. <laughs> I have a really straight hair. And it looks like I'm like... <laughs> I'm just like, going to play a lot of characters with perms. <laughs> like, this would be so hard, to, so impossible to recreate in real life, this look. I'll never be able to do it again. Why would I give people this expectation? It's very funny looking yeah. back at them. Oh, my God. Okay, Svia, what would you go to school for? I feel like I'm so in awe of our graphics department at the show. And whenever I see something they've done, I'm like, I wish I knew how to do that. But I'm Mm -hmm. not sure school would help because I feel like a lot of it is also natural talent, which I don't have. (laughs) But I would love to just like, I don't know, hang out and like learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. I think what they do is so cool. That's really neat. Oh, that's so neat. What a good idea. Let's all do it. I would n- I'm going back to school now. I, would never, <laughs> I never would go back to school, but I definitely think about auditing classes still. Mm-hmm. Now I think like when I retire eventually, all my neighbors in my building, a, a lot of my neighbors are kind of are retirement age and I keep running into them and they're like, we're auditing a class at the Juilliard on opera. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you do? They're like, yeah, we just go and we just hear the whole lecture and then we don't have to do the work. Like, that sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited about today's guest. Don't go anywhere because we have Philip Picardi coming right up. (laughs) 
Joining me today is Philip Picardi. At just 30 years old, he already has one of the more impressive media resumes, having previously served as chief content officer of both Teen Vogue and Them, an LGBTQ-focused publication he founded in 2017. He also served as the editor-in-chief of Out Magazine before launching Unholier Than Thou on Crooked Media. He is our youngest guest to date, so I really hope he doesn't think I'm lame. I'm so excited to talk to him. Please welcome to the show, Philip Picardi. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. I'm thrilled to have you on. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, you look so attractive. Look at your cute sweatshirt. (laughs) Looking so good. You got flowers on your table. I don't have any of that. As they said video was required, I was like, oh, boy. I'm, I'm, I was so nervous that you were showing up in full glam and I was like, oh, oh no, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I appreciate that. I've been living in a, a dorm room for the past four months. So I just got back to LA yesterday. So I'm feeling very oh. relieved to be able to actually stretch my arms out and not touch walls. It's really nice. That's fantastic. <laughs> You're in your own space with all your stuff around oh, you. Yeah. Beautiful things. Yeah. Beautiful they make a things. difference. They do, right? Are you tactile that way? Or are you like, oh, look at my, there's my lamp. There's my ambiance. no idea. I mean, everything in this apartment, to, much to my husband's chagrin, yeah. was like painfully curated. Oh, and God. yeah, my, um, had you, have you ever had your chart read? Have you ever met Channy Nicholas, the astrologer? No, no. Oh, you need to, you need to. Really? I will, okay. I will email your people afterwards. I'm sure she would, okay. she would absolutely love to meet you. But yeah, there's okay. like this thing in your chart where wherever your Venus is located on your chart tells you like how you like experience beauty in the world and oh. how important it is to you. Because for some people, it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter, right? And sure. mine is in the exalted place. So everything has to be beautiful or I literally can't function. So I'm very relieved to be back in Los Angeles after coming oh. home from Boston. <laughs> I am relieved for you. <laughs> I totally you, understand you. what you're saying. It's like I picked the one room that isn't totally curated in my own life to do the podcast <laughs> from. <laughs> just an exercise bike with like laundry on it which doesn't have it doesn't have laundry on it today but i definitely like the rest of my house sometimes i walk around and i'm like i love that candle holder and i'm just so excited that it's there <laughs> i know the i feeling. love a heavy brass like just that brass candle holder gives me yeah. so much food. sometimes i pick it up I'm like oh look like at you. i wish i could tell you how much this vase cost but i would be too embarrassed to ever say it publicly but i love this vase I understand what you're saying completely. It's beautiful. It is. Okay. It wasn't really worth what it's cost. Okay, but yeah. well, we can, <laughs> it's nice. We can, we, can, we can offline about the cost of that beautiful vase, but I understand. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Do you realize this is a this is a milestone day because you're the youngest person we've ever had on this podcast? <laughs> Get out of here, really? I'm not even young anymore. No, come okay, on. Okay, I love that. Well, you're like 30, right? You're I'm 30, 30, yes. Okay, but you spent a lot of your career leading transformational change at Teen Vogue. So like I did. Yeah. I have teenagers in my home. How -hmm. are you a leader of of teenagers? What should I what do I need to know about teens? (laughs) Teens? First of all, don't call them teens. (laughs) What we need to know about teenagers is that they are wiser than we give them credit for. Right. right? My whole thing about going to Teen Vogue, you know, it's a long story that the Teen Vogue story is such a like, it's a little bit of a Cinderella story and also a Cinderella nightmare for me. But I arrived at Teen Vogue when I was 18. I was a freshman at NYU. And I basically was with the brand until I was 21. So I was there all through college. Yeah. And then I left because I couldn't get a job as an assistant in the beauty department because the then beauty director was like, sorry, we don't hire boys to work in the 
beauty department, which was <gasps> devastating for me because I wore I wear makeup every day of my life. Mm-hmm. I'm not wearing it right now, of course. So anyways, I ended up somehow getting back to Teen Vogue. And at 23, I was appointed the digital editorial director. And basically, the editor-in-chief, Amy Astley, was like, listen, we have to grow the website at all costs. Like, whatever it takes, I just need it to grow because I need corporate to get off of my back because, you know, they're breathing down our necks. And I said, okay, you know, the real secret to growing Teen Vogue is like, let's stop underestimating young women. Like, let's just stop assuming that these young girls are only interested in, like, what to wear to prom and what Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez are up to. And because I was 23, I had just been a teenager, but also because I was the sole out gay student at my high school and teenage girls were the people who defended me from mean people, defended me from teachers, defended me sometimes from my own parents. I knew that teenage girls were basically incredibly formidable. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to give them credit and I wanted to give them what they deserved. And then that's why I felt really strongly that we needed to change our whole editorial strategy. But it was a gamble at the time. This was before Parkland. This was before people were taking young people seriously and people were like obsessed with what the next generation was doing. And so luckily, the editorial strategy ended up paying off. I mean, Teen Vogue became the fastest growing magazine in the company for two years, which was great. But it was um, at the time, it was a risk. But yeah, we kind of had nothing to lose. So (laughs) I love that. Like, and when you were doing that, or when you were taking that mission on, I love that you said that teen girls are formidable, because that is the perfect I mean, that is like literally the perfect word. Did you have it in your mind? Like, I'm creating this for for teenagers, like I'm or did you just erase that from your mind? And you were just like, I'm just respecting this body and I'm going to inject it with I think things that they're gonna it's such a like it's such a complicated demographic and they're so hard teenage girls are so hard on themselves like teenagers are so hard on themselves did you just kind of like erase all your expectations how did you how did you do that how can I do that (laughs) no I'm joking no it's it's interesting because for me it was about giving myself what I felt I needed as a teenager And, you know, for me, I went to Catholic high school. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't taught about my body in the sense that like, we didn't have sex ed in Catholic high school. We were not encouraged to be political at our Catholic high school. And, you know, that's probably a good thing that it was located in Boston, because if it was a Catholic school that was encouraging us to be political, it probably would not have been the kind of politics I would have aligned with. But anyways, I wanted to make sure that teenagers were coming into the world with a real sense of justice and an accurate portrayal of American history and the American present, because that's something I knew a lot of teenagers would not be getting from their schooling. And so we tackled really big and ambitious stories. And then we also made a deliberate effort to make sure that the publication itself was being more size inclusive. That was one of the harder battles to fight at the magazine. Like it was easier for us to write about abortion than to include plus size models sometimes. Really? And um, we also wrote about things like LGBTQ inclusive sex ed. We wrote about the trans rights movement. Black Lives Matter was started by young people. You know, a lot of the indigenous rights movements and remember the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, Mm -hmm. those were things where young people were on the front line. So we came into the editorial kind of mission of Teen Vogue and its reinvigoration at a real, I think, inflection point in American history, which would eventually lead to Hillary Clinton losing the presidency. And that was another challenging opportunity for us to rise to the occasion. And so... Yeah, the mission was always shifting, but it was always like, you know, when you wake up every day and you're surrounded by young people, everyone in our newsroom was like under the age of 30 at one point. And we would just wake up every morning and say, what do we need to give to teenagers today? 
it was a really profound uh, sense of living life just because mm-hmm. it was it was focused on youth, but not in like a way that we were youth obsessed. We were focused on like how we can empower youth and right. make sure that they know what they need to know to make the world a better place because we were losing faith in ourselves to be able to to make the world a better place. Right. Oh my God, that's great. I don't even I, I don't even feel feel like I know Teen Vogue before your transformation of it. Like it just never it didn't even register with me as a kid because I didn't really read magazines like that as a kid. Like, it also wasn't was around. Writing. It's a young publication. It just turned oh, 18, it? actually. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm conflating it with like other kind of like teen magazines. Exactly. Like, like 17. Yeah. And and weirdly enough, 17 was ballsy at one point and did really cool covers and had really cool coverage. And Gloria Steinem used to write for 17. So there's like an interesting history of teen magazines. The New Yorker just did a cool piece on it. Mm-hmm. And Teen Vogue was a part of it, but more a part of its present. But yeah, teen publications have always been a really cool, I guess, like fertile ground for right. uh, some sort of revolution in, in media. So we were just kind of following that tradition. And oh my God. yeah, I, I think we it. did an okay job. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like our teen, like even my teenage I mean I might have a daughter who's just about to turn 16 and she's so much smarter than I was when I was she just knows more about the world and she just knows more about everything I think I knew quite a bit but she's so savvy about herself and her boundaries in a way that I just never learned that stuff when I was growing it wasn't a part of the conversation at all it's a double-edged sword isn't it because I, I think that a lot about these kids, you know, like where, where I look at them or I speak to them and they have such a profound sense of their place in the world. And I think that can be a really good thing. And then like this morning, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy just released this report about young people's mental health being effectively in, you know, a state of emergency, especially right. the pandemic had had multiplied these things. The Trevor Project is an LGBTQ nonprofit, and they always do a national survey every year's end of LGBTQ youth. And, you know... It's it's disheartening to read that like upwards of 40% of queer and trans youth are contemplating suicide this yeah. year. So at, at the same time that kids are more aware and more present than ever, that's also a call for us as adults in the room to take care of them better than teenagers have ever been taken care of before. Because right. these kids are holding a lot. And then there's the existential threats they're facing of climate change right. and what's going on with our democracy, which you so poignantly talk about on your show and, and bring voice to. Um, and I think it's probably a hard time to feel good about the future. And so, yes, I'm glad that these kids are smarter than ever. And at the same time, I still want them to be kids, man. I know. I know. It does feel like there's like the weight of the world. I mean, it feels the literal weight of the world is on their shoulders and they know it. (laughs) They really know it as they watch all of us kind of like flail around. (laughs) Like they watch their government just like flopping around like a bunch of fish in a basket trying yes. to get something to stick. That's right. You have said that as a, a gay kid growing up in a Catholic family, people like Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears helped you find yourself. If you were growing up now, who would oh, you gosh. who do you think you'd be looking to? That is such a good question. Oh my gosh. Christina Aguilera's stripped album, like when she sang oh, Dirty. Dirty. For some reason, Dirty and Beautiful were two of like, that album is the soundtrack of my coming out. And then Britney Spears, you know, and you see all of her gay fans, like you see all these grown men as a part of the free Britney movement. And it's just because, I don't know, we see something in these divas and their potential to exist as like these powerful feminine beings. And for me, as someone who was taught that femininity is a bad thing for me to express, I was so I just admired them so much for everything they were able to hold while in the public spotlight and while 
just being so captivating to watch. And then, you know, you look at like examples that I think our kids have, like, I love Ariana Grande. I gotta say, you know, and she's, she's one of those people who she moves in a way that is meaningful and it's not the most noisy, right? So she made this gigantic donation last year to Trans Santa, which is an organization started by India Moore and she's Strangio to help trans kids basically get items off of their Christmas wish list that Mm. like basically they wouldn't be able to get normally. And she made this gigantic donation during the pandemic. She made a big donation to help her fans and followers get access to mental health counseling, virtual mental health counseling. So yeah, I love that she's committed to that stuff. And I love that she's herself again in that same kind of like diva way, but is doing so with like such a sense of purpose. So yeah, she's, she's one of my, she's one of my biggest for sure. One of, one of the girls that, I mean, she was my, I'm sadly in her 0.5% of listeners on Spotify. I just learned from my rapt experience. (laughs) (laughs) Have you met these women? Have you gotten a chance to meet any of these? I have met Christina and I've met (gasps) Ariana. Yes. Yes. Oh, you haven't. What was that? What is that like for you? Like, do you, I mean, it's weird to meet your childhood heroes, right? Yeah. Like, how do you have a conversation? Do you, was your, were you, was your, were you like fluttering? Were you freaking out internally? I was definitely like, had gone back to that place where I was a little kid when I saw Christina Aguilar right. again. I actually think I overwhelmed her. Like, it was kind of like, okay, calm down. Um, was the vibe that I got from Christina. No disrespect. I love her. I love her so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ariana is so funny because I don't, uh, Ariana is literally like meeting another gay man. Like, it's just <laughs> Like the socialization and the cues and the jokes, like she just talks like one of us. So I felt very comfortable with her um, right away. And she's such a sweet person. But yeah, Christina, (laughs) I think I made a little bit of an ass of myself. I was just I just wanted to hug her so badly. Like the little boy in me just wanted to like be held by her, you know? Right, right. I'm sure. But I'm sure she gets that a lot where she she just like meets people and they immediately melt down. Like just like tears are in your eyes because you're like a child again. Yes, I get it. I totally get it. Have you ever had that experience with someone? I have. (sighs) I was just telling somebody about it recently. I actually had had it a couple of times. The one that is the most embarrassing, and I really did. Who the heck was I telling? Anyways, when I met Carol Burnett, I... Oh, that's such a good one. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I could almost, I could tell, I can tell you that I could almost cry going back to the place where I met Carol Burnett. Like, I cry. I was wow. crying internally, like just here come the waterworks. And I also overwhelmed her. <laughs> and she's really little <laughs> and she was pretty old. <laughs> and I was like, if I, I felt like just like a, like a, mo- like a hulking monster next to her in like a full face of makeup. And I would just like have these big shoulder pads on. And I was like, if I, go to hug you i'm gonna crush your bones like <laughs> i was like i'm gonna crush carol burnout with my love today and she definitely was like please calm down i get this a lot <laughs> i really don't know who you are you're just another lady to me with like a big jacket on and the other one is judy bloom Oh, amazing. Oh, that's such a special one. I bet she was cool about it, though. I feel like she must be so Well, used you to know that. what? She was very cool about it. And in fact, I did have the... And then... So I met her and I was like... And she handled it just with such complete grace. Like, just such a pro. And then I did something for her. And then I did like a talk at the 92nd Street Y. And I, I moderated it. So we got to know each other a little better. And it was like an incredible honor. 
but I was much more comfortable with her. And then I witnessed like a whole lineup of people outside the green room who came in and had that exact experience of just being so overwhelmed with her. And she just, I don't know, she was just really zen and really just so generous because I think yeah. she has come to realize. And I, I do think, and I think you'll probably agree with me that Judy Bloom is like an unsung hero. Like we I do agree with that wholeheartedly, we yes. We don't think enough to the Judy Bloom, who like was so form. I mean, another person who took young people seriously, like really yes. seriously and was very really invested seriously. in that. Yes. Yes. Mm. Oh, these people. You know what? I got inspired to put hand cream on. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Excellent. I like, yeah, no, I do. It, Have you ever seen that Instagram of, um, it's like a collection of women applying hand cream in bed and movies. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever seen it? I forget. What, like, you know it. how like, yeah, and they mm-hmm. always do it like this. Yeah, like just, it's like a just big doing, gesture. Yep, and it's just the, a full the elbows. elbows. You know what? Yeah. I just don't. I don't believe that if you moisturize your elbows, they're ever going to look good. They're never going to look good, and you shouldn't ever look at your own elbows. Wow. You know what? Yeah. I um I think that my partner would have something to say to you about that for sure. I remember when we first started dating. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just like, I I like to say that unfortunately there does exist a hygiene gap between white people and black people. And I remember when we first started dating, he handed me a washcloth for the shower. And I'm I'm just like, I have sensitive skin. I've only ever used just like body wash straight on my body. He was horrified. (gasps) Then I got out of the shower and then I went to, I was like, I was getting into bed and he was like, um, are you going to lotion? And he was like, what about your ankles and your elbows and your knees? And I was like, I've never really, I don't. It's like I lotion occasionally, like if I'm feeling dry, but I don't do it like every time. Right. And he was mm. he was so horrified. So yeah, the the lotion on the elbows is is an essential essential now for me in this household. Listen, it's an essential, but I don't know why because I don't think it makes that big a difference. I don't know. <laughs> it feels like I do it, but I you do know. it. I do it, you know, to keep my husband happy. That's that's, that's nice. How it works for you me. know what? That's yes. kind. For me, it's a little bit like you just forget about what's happening in the back. Like when, you know, when I was growing up, we just like feathered our hair, but just the front. <laughs> like all you had to do was feather in the front. And you were like, no one ever sees the back. <laughs> so you just turn around yeah. and it's just like a rat's nest back it's there. It's just like a, yeah. a horrible or like flat or just like bedhead. And you're like, it doesn't matter because I'm not three dimensional. I'm just like flat like a magazine <laughs> picture. <laughs> and now here we all are on Zoom. And that's actually true. We are truly just two dimensional yeah, creatures. Just have to feather the front from here on out. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> good, good advice. <laughs> feather the front. Okay. So you are currently at yes. Harvard Divinity School. You're pursuing a master's I- degree. In religion, you're doing a podcast about religion. Can you please tell me? And people, like, I mean, it's real. You're you're incredible. So, and people are like following. It's just like you're doing such a great job. So, tell me about that journey because I don't. And you have to forgive me. I actually don't know what the journey was. Like, why make that shift? I got to like the end of 2019. Yeah. I had been an ASME-nominated journalist, Forbes 30 Under 30, Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People. I had won all sorts of awards, had um, been the youngest ever chief content officer, editorial director in Condé Nast history, launched my own brand with Anna Wintour, called Them. 
then left the company to be the editor-in-chief of Out, which was my biggest, you know, childhood dream. It had been on my vision board since I was a teenager. And um, I got to the end of this year at Out where I basically inherited a massive pay scandal that the magazine was not paying its freelancers. The company was owned by a heterosexual white guy who was donating to anti-LGBT politicians. Mm. And the whole year, my whole year there where we were doing just like really groundbreaking and incredible and, and beautiful work was plagued just by scandal. And I get to the end of the year. My body is covered in psoriasis from my fingernails to my scalp, you know, like I have a a full body rash. Yeah. And I like look at myself in the mirror, you know, as we are approaching the out 100 party. And it's kind of like you don't really recognize the person that looks back at you, you know, and I really thought to myself. It's time to change. And it's not time to change in a way that's like it's time to go get another job in this like really rapidly declining media industry that is probably not ever going to fully appreciate what you can offer it. It's like it's actually time to take a break. And ambition had been the name of the game for my life since I was, you know, since really I can remember it was like ambition was the void that I was filling from not having the approval of like the adults in my life and, and the people I cared about for as long as I could remember And so I needed to step off of the hamster wheel. And when I started thinking about what I would want to do next, for some reason, the the answer kept on going back to like, when I left the church and when I left God and why that was such a source of trauma for me. Right. And that's when I decided to start Unholier Than Thou with Crooked Media. And I spoke to them about it. And I was like, do you think we can do religion, but like have it be fun and skeptical and like a little cynical and I can swear and we can talk about BDSM and Buddhism, you know, and like still have people hopefully engage with it. And John Lovett at Crooked was so, you know, so for it. And, you know, while I was doing the podcast, I find out about this program at Harvard and I figured I might as well just go for it. And yeah, I got in. So it does feel like it's it's been the right thing, but it has been the most challenging like two years of my life to like leave a stable job, a stable paycheck, and this kind of industry that I had pined for since I was a kid. I left all of it. And I'm now like reading theology textbooks at, at Harvard and writing like seventy five pages of final essays right now. It's it's a wow. really interesting it's been a really interesting uh cultural shift for me. I admire that so much. It's actually it's so hard to it's so hard to jump off the hamster wheel, right? Like when you've been sort of, when you've really ingested that message that you're just supposed to keep going, it is really, really hard to jump off. And I love what you said about being covered in psoriasis because like, sorry, can I just say, because yeah. no, because when you have that level of stress and you, when you have that and it goes into your flesh in a way that you can see, yes, that is a real message to you. It was. And it really was. And ever since I've gone on this journey, it's not about like people are always like, it's about me finding God. And I I don't really know that that's true. I'm not sure I'm going to leave Harvard or leave this experience having an intimate relationship with God or thinking that I'm Christian again. That's not what Mm -hmm. this is about. Right. For me, it was about healing this childhood wound that like I am a sinner, that I am less than. And I wanted to go to the source material. Like, so it's like, it's about engaging with the Bible and it's about engaging with critics of Christian theology. And it's about right. learning where all of this comes from. Right. And it's about just giving myself the chance to, again, and this is all weirdly coming back to the teenage self in this conversation. It's about healing that teenager right. and telling him that he's loved and that he's not evil. He's not bad. Right. 
Right. Right. Um, and so that was really important work for me to do. It's important work for me to do as a partner to my husband. It's important work for me to do as a creative person. And it's, it's, it's just something of like, instead of choosing bitterness towards religion and God right. and resentment for religion, it's about choosing peace and finding peace. Right. And that's a, it's a hard, it's been really hard and arduous work and it's been a lot of therapy, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been really, really it's been really weird and eye-opening. I'm writing an essay right now called um, Is Jesus Kind of Hot? <gasps> and it's oh like Oh boy. Mm. Yeah, I know. This might this might not make the the episode. We'll see how no, heretical this will, it is. This will make it. We have to okay, talk are about you, Jesus being hot. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just preparing yeah. yourself. So, I'm a teenager. Yeah. Teenagers have hormones. Just that's the background, okay? But anyways, oh. I figured out around 12, 13, definitely gay. Definitely like sneaking onto like Kazaa and Napster and downloading some very unsavory videos to watch. Sure. And feeling really guilty about it after, like basically finishing the deed and then being like, damn, like the devil (laughs) is in me. You know what I mean? The devil just came out of me. So I would basically be in this pattern, this rinse and repeat pattern where I would go and I would sin and then I would go to church every Sunday and be like, Jesus, please. So one Sunday I was in church and my dad like would always bring me to church. He was so excited. I wanted to go to church with him. He always told me I had to be a priest. Lo and behold, it's because I was gay and he didn't want me to go to hell. Anyway, so I'm sitting in the pew, dad snoring in the pew next to me. And I'm looking up at this like gigantic life-size crucifix of Jesus. And I'm just begging him. I'm like, please, if you are real, fix me. Because I don't want this and I don't know I don't know if you gave it to me or if it's my fault, but I don't want it anymore. So take it away. I'll take anything instead of it. And so I'm like having this moment where I'm like staring at the crucifix. And then I'm like, does Jesus have a six pack? <laughs> like, that's kind of yeah. weird, right? Like I'm like looking at his torso all of a sudden. And then it's like, you know, he's like kind of oily. Like he's like sweaty. Mm-hmm. And he's yeah. like held there. Like he's restrained, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's it's reminding me of some things I've seen outside of a religious context. Sure. And so I'm there, you know, I'm sitting down and then the priest says, please rise. And I was like, well, baby, I already have. Right. And I entered this spiral of like, oh my God, even Jesus turns me on. So I I, (laughs) like for six months, I'm having this Mm -hmm. like anxiety spiral about finding the Lord and savior and Messiah attractive. Mm-hmm. And so I'm at Harvard all these years later. I've completely forgotten more or less about like how much this like memory had really traumatized me and made me think I was going just like straight to hell. I thought a lightning yeah. bolt was just going to come crash down on me at any moment. Yeah. And I'm reading these books about like the invention of handsome Jesus, like how Jesus had to become a conventionally attractive white man in order for Christianity to proselytize its message, right? And so there was this movement in the 20th century where women were outnumbering men in the Protestant church. And so the men who were in charge of the church felt threatened by this. And so they deliberately enforced a quote-unquote muscular Christianity. So they start repainting Jesus. So he has a square jawline, and he's like slightly buffer. And he looks a little bit more like, you know, he could really flip those tables in the temple kind of a guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And their whole purpose was to make Jesus this foreboding handsome, masculine, like Rock Hudson-ish kind of figure. And it's been a deep part of white Christian marketing and messaging, never mind the fact that Jesus Christ, accurately speaking, was like a Palestinian Jewish man, right? And so was most likely a brown man, you know what I'm saying? And and in the Bible had been described as like, 
being kind of small in stature and bearded. And one passage even reports of of him kind of walking bow-legged and having a humpback, right? And so it's Mm -hmm. like, there's really like, theologically speaking, this idea of Jesus's beauty was actually a really clever invention of the church as it's looking to kind of mainstream its its message and make Jesus appealing to a wider audience and a whiter audience. And that's just something I've been I've been reflecting on as I've been working through my finals this semester. Listen, we can talk endlessly about this because I went to Catholic school too. Oh, and get out! And I was definitely in love with Jesus. Like in my world, you are either in love with Jesus or you in love with horses. It was like horses <laughs> or Jesus. And that's how you're going to learn about sexuality. <laughs> the horse thing is fascinating. The horse girl situation. Yes. Okay. Following. Horse girls or Jesus girls. Well, I was a Jesus girl and I had a picture of him with his sacred bleeding heart over my bed. Like a boy band poster. Like a boy band poster. And I looked at it every night and I'd be like, Jesus, <laughs> we're gonna get I definitely thought we were gonna get married. Totally. And I definitely, definitely because he looked like Chris Christopherson, like at his height, or like <laughs> Exactly. This is exactly what I'm like, talking about. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I definitely had an ongoing fantasy that I was gonna be like I grew up in Toronto. I went to St. Vincent de Paul Catholic School, you know, it was like a whole thing. And I uh, definitely had an ongoing fantasy about walking down Bloor Street. And I was like, Jesus is going to materialize in front of me. He's going to be like, you're the one for me. Then he's going to wash my feet. Then he gets a big bowl. I put my feet in it. He washes <laughs> I know your mouth. I'm sorry. You're- <laughs> I feel a kindred connection to you. Like this is yeah. a, yeah. I'm like, he takes his hair and he kind of like washes my feet with it. And then we consummate our love. And then we're just like, and then we're together. Yes. And (laughs) so, okay, hot Jesus. And you know, what really helped that sexification or like, like made Jesus so appealing was the casting of Jesus of Nazareth, that miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, with the blue eyed, like pale skinned, gorgeous, handsome British actor playing Jesus. Yep. These are these are monumental things. And my mother, who's like Wicca, like she's like not she's a lapsed, fully lapsed Catholic, was like, I'm going in a different direction of my life. Every time and she's she a witch. My, yeah. Every time she wow. came into my room and saw like the sacred heart of Jesus, she was like, you know, he was a Middle Eastern man. He was like walking around barefoot. He was like a dark skinned Middle Eastern man. Just like get it in your head. And I was like, he's a handsome British man. <laughs> I just, we were just. <laughs> it's so funny because, you know, I'm I'm in a class where I study Teresa of Avila, the Carmelite nun, and she was a mystic. So she had these visions. So you, you may be familiar with the ecstasy of St. Teresa. She's sure. portrayed like by Bernini as having a full blown orgasm uh-huh. with an angel next to her. And like, that's how she had these ecstasies of these religious experiences. But she writes these passage after passage about Jesus being her husband and waiting for the kiss of Jesus's mouth and encouraging the nuns of her order to pray about the kiss of Jesus's mouth. And then I find out after I'm digging into this history of like Jesus as bridegroom, that monks of many orders did the same thing. They were encouraged to view themselves as the woman in the Song of Songs as the recipients of 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 Christ the bridegroom. Wow. Right? So actually what we are explaining is a bizarre part of a monastic tradition of seeing unity wow. with Jesus. So, not exactly sinners. I wouldn't I mean, it wasn't exactly saintly what I was envisioning, but at the yeah. same time, 
I know that there's a religious tradition in history Mm -hmm. of people who are very holy, who are canonized by that Catholic church who felt the same way you and I did. So whatever comfort that might offer you. (laughs) This is so, I mean, it's really complicated. I mean, it's really, really fascinating and extremely complicated. And it is the ways in which like just the agonizing gymnastics, mental gymnastics we've all gone through to like, to feel these feelings, to justify these feelings in our bodies, to like try to eradicate them from our minds and bodies, what we have been through. And it's a tale as old as time. Like it's been happening forever. And we're all still there. (laughs) It's incredible. It's it is the way that re- like the grip religion has on us. And, and to me, I think the biggest light bulb that has gone off this year is like, you know, we had this whole series of, of readings to do on the myth of secularism and how America is not a secular nation. And right. for some reason, even though I knew about the importance of the religious right voting block, mm-hmm. I had convinced myself that they were like the fringe movement and that the rest of us were occupying like what America, you know, really is. But it's it's completely backwards, isn't it? It's like America's not a secular nation. No. In God we trust is written on our bills. In the Supreme Court hearing on abortion, you know, it's like God help the justices yeah. and God help this court and God bless this court, right? Religion is baked into how we think about everything. It's baked into how we treat incarcerated people. It's baked into how we treat our immigrants. Like and 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 sadly, it's not an accurate or not a positive portrayal of how we treat the least favored or the most marginalized in our world. Um, somehow it's been weaponized against those people. And I just think naming that and coming to terms with that has been really crucial to like better understanding what you want your own spiritual life to look like. Yeah. And I think it's like totally okay to spend your, I don't know, I, I maybe a long time ago, or maybe even when I was a kid, like forgave myself for not completely buying the whole thing. Like, you know, I remember at 13, there was like confirmation time. And I was like, I don't think I want to be confirmed because I'm not, Sure. I think I'm mm-hmm. still seeking. Like, I don't want to make a promise to Jesus if he's real, just in case I can't keep yeah. that promise. So I'm going to hold off and still, like, I appreciate what you're talking about. Just like that, it's just like a lifetime of seeking. Like, how do you reconcile all these things? How do you, like, because I, I don't know. I, I admire people of faith. I really do. Like, same truly admire it and i love talking to people about their faith and i love like going like oh that's a really interesting way to frame it like i consider myself a person of faith do you consider yourself a person of faith i would call myself a spiritual person right for me a person of faith you know i for some reason and and i'm not saying that my definition is right and yours is wrong i'm just saying this is what it means in my head is someone who has a like regularly disciplined practice and tradition that they're a part of That is not my story per se. I mean, I I do like read the tarot every morning, but I wouldn't call that myself being a person of faith, but maybe that has to do with like how I think Christianity is a real faith and everything else maybe is, you know, subconsciously (laughs) I'm I'm still like battling those like childhood, I guess, ideas about Christianity. I do admire people of faith. And at the same time, it's also important to me that anything I'm a part of is in service of justice. And I've had a hard time identifying a faith in this world that is truly in service of justice and and specifically injustice for the people who I'm the most concerned about and who I love the most. So that's what I think I've been I've been grappling with um, in terms of attempting that again. Yeah, because there is always like there's a kind of there's like a duality too. because I've like talked to a lot of not, you know, these this incredible order of nuns in Washington and I just like love them. 
and they go, they, they're just doing all of that work. They're just like giving over everything in service to people, mm -hmm. like taking women to their appointments for abortions. If that's what's needed, like overriding all of those kind of like doctrine ideas, like overriding all of that to, to be, to, to, to like walk with Jesus and just serve to just like serve in whatever way is needed. But there's, you know, still a part of that. That's still a part of a church where I'm kind of like, ah, I don't, but I don't like what you, ah, like, I, yep. but I, there's a whole other part that I, I'm so confused by like the riches, like the vast riches held by the Catholic church. And then you've got all of these people doing like all of that really spiritual, like really deep work. And just like, they wouldn't even hold on to a dollar. They give it to the poor. Yep. But the church itself just sits on a mountain of money, like Smaug. It's crazy yeah. to and me. And they're spending that money to help sex abusers yes. evade accountability, you know? I can't make and it work. also starting Catholic hospitals in, our, in this country, in yes. America, in the middle of healthcare deserts to deliberately, you know, prevent people from being able to access reproductive care, LGBTQ affirming yes. healthcare. I'm sorry, yes. that's not a church I can be a part of. It doesn't no. mean I can't respect a Catholic person. Or respect their choice to be Catholic. Of course, you right. know, that's that's for you and yourself and your own, you know, theological beliefs to like hold true to. For me, it doesn't work. For, that's yeah. just, it's just not, it's not possible no. for me. And, but it does make you feel really, or it makes me feel really lonely sometimes because I do wonder like, where is the home for me? You know, and that's not right. something I've been able to locate just yet, but I'm, I'm still hopeful. I think I'm still hopeful. Right. Definitely. Did you see that docu? Sorry, I'm just. This is such a wide ranging conversation. I hope it's Fine. all okay. I'm, yeah, I think it's. I really... would tell you if it wasn't. <laughs> okay. Did you watch that documentary on Netflix about mushrooms and fungi? Oh no, but you know, my friends are um, in a like psychedelics course at the Divinity School and um, the okay. spirituality of psychedelics, and yes, yeah, so they all have. Well, I got to tell you, it's really worth uh, it's I'm not going to I'm not going to take um, all the listeners down this path. But I felt like <laughs> I had an almost religious experience just watching the documentary. I was like, oh, maybe I need to believe in <laughs> maybe I need to believe in the interconnectedness of fungi. So like, yeah, that's anyway, I highly <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, just to recommend. not to like get too profound about it, but a lot of indigenous traditions, like yeah. we hear a lot about plant medicines and um, plant-induced hallucinations that are really important to, you know, rituals, um, initiation rites and stuff that all stem from indigenous faiths and, and healing traditions that have long been suppressed and marginalized and looked down upon by Western traditions, right? Mm -hmm. So the premise of, of this kind of like move towards psychedelics, I hope that we don't lose sight that it is still rooted in indigenous tradition, right? People yeah. have been doing this before the hippies started doing it. So that's first and foremost. It is not necessarily a white man's venture. And it's important that we acknowledge that and hold that to be central and true. The second yeah. thing, though, is that like just on the basis of, you know, believing in the profundity of like a creation of God's creation or of the creator's creation or whatever, fungi are fascinating. Fungi help the trees in our forest communicate yes. with one another, right? Mm -hmm. So they're protecting shelter for organisms and helping organisms fight disease. You know, fungi are at the root of so much of the miracles of, mm -hmm. you know, and I call them miracles because I do think nature is miraculous. Like they're, yeah. you know, fungi are kind of at the root of so much that is beyond, I think, human comprehension. Mm -hmm. um, and if you ever read the book, The Overstory 
by Richard no. Powers. There's so much about fungi in there and how fungi are basically the the brains of our of our forests. And um, it's a great New York Times Magazine piece called, I think it's called The Secret Life of Trees or Secret Life of Forests that gets into this more. But yeah, like uh-huh. that stuff does make you think this is not, maybe this isn't just a coincidence, right? And I don't yes. really believe in coincidences. Like the the best way I can sum up my spirituality is to just say like, so many people ask me why I choose to engage with religion in this way or why I choose to engage in spirituality or why I'm even on this journey to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, like the better question that I ask is why not? Because right. I choose to see the world as enchanted. I choose to see things not just as coincidence. I choose to think that things happen and there some things are meant to be. And not everything is the work of some like, divine creator's hand, like pushing us in the right direction. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that there's more than just the choices that we make. And, you know, that's the end of it all once we get buried into the ground. I, I just choose to believe there's more. And that just, it helps me keep going. Oh my goodness. I'm sweating from this conversation. I love it so much. (laughs) So much fun. I feel like my questions are so heavy, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Okay. What do you think that, okay. If we're just talking about that evangelical voting block for like one second. Yeah, yeah. Because I just don't, I love to seek and I love to talk about it and it's all really fun, but there's a big voting block out there voting a certain way Mm -hmm. and they're very powerful. What do you think that, um, my God, what did the evangelicals need to tell themselves to convince themselves that Trump was God's candidate? (laughs) My goodness. Not Mm. a lot that's not already a part of white Christian supremacy is what Mm -hmm. I would say. I think a lot of people were shocked and conveyed disgust at it. And I think to me that still is missing the bigger point, which is we are a country of Christian conquest and empire. When Christopher Columbus landed here, right, the first thing he did was say that indigenous people were blank slates. They raped women. They spread disease. They committed cultural genocide. And they were blessed in doing so from the Catholic Church, right? This was Manifest Destiny. It is about spreading Jesus's kingdom. And that continued on with the transatlantic slave trade, which also, you know, was not necessarily decried by the Catholic Church. And the Christian conquest of Africa is also like a long and really brutal and really disastrous history, what um, white Christians have done to that continent in particular. So to say that Donald Trump is a betrayal of an evangelical Christian belief system is false. It misses the point. Donald Trump as an agent of white supremacy, as a deeply patriarchal male who believes in violence and perpetuates violence, unfortunately, is an actual pretty legitimate reflection of white Christian empire. And their whole belief in electing him was they can take that he's maybe an adulterer, or maybe he's made mistakes in assaulting women, right? Again, all things that are in our Bible, right? Sure. That the point is he's in the service of Christian justice in the world right. because he's going to force Americans to live under a Christian idea of morality, which means no abortion, which means a genocide of transgender people, which means curbing LGBTQ rights, right? right. Which means presenting this as a homeland for white people whose land this was destined for. And yeah, so in that way, he's not as much of a stretch as I think the media made him out to be. He's actually the embodiment of what they were hoping for. He's that cracked vessel. 
He's that yeah. cracked, broken vessel that's going to get them the bigger things that they want. And the more complicated thing about Trump and his ilk mm-hmm. is that they delivered. Right. Right. That's the that's the harder thing to comprehend is that he made promises to these folks about abortion and now Roe versus Wade is likely to be overturned in June. Right. Right. He told them that he was going to make the Supreme Court conservative and he did. He did. And he told them he was going to build the wall and like whether or not it's effective doesn't matter. He yeah. did. And he caged all of those people, right? And again, I'm not just saying that it was just Trump who caged people. Biden is continuing some of these policies. And of course, Obama helped to enact some of these policies or make them possible before. So I'm not just saying it was Trump, but it is, you know, it is a frustrating thing to reckon with that Democrats often feel like they elect people who don't fulfill their campaign promises. And Donald Trump did fulfill a lot of his campaign promises. Yeah. So, you know, if we can overturn Roe v. Wade and ban abortion after almost 50 years, what, you know, what do we do to protect the right to marry? Like, do we believe in the sanctity of precedent at all anymore? It doesn't seem like it, right? Like Sonia Sotomayor kind of raised the alarm about that, didn't Mm -hmm. she, in her dissenting remarks. To, you know, to be fair, like LGBTQ lawyers who have been watching the fight against trans people. Right. So there's like 121 pieces of anti-trans legislation that have entered state houses all across the country this year alone. Yeah. Most of them deliberately targeting minors. Most of them um, having language in them that would punish the parents for providing gender affirming health care to minors. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. just for the listeners who don't know, gender affirming health care to minors does not mean gender affirming surgery. No. It often just means things like beta blockers, which are approved by the American Endocrine Society and the Pediatric Endocrine Society or allowing them to dress as they choose or use the name that they choose. It does not, you know, these Republicans yeah. are making it sound like we're all out here, you know, butchering kids or, or whatever it is. And it's just yeah. um, that language has really caught hold. And the misinformation campaign against trans people has been so real that yeah. we are now facing the deadliest year on record for transgender people. 375 trans people murdered this year across the globe. And that's just what's been reported. You know, so a lot of lawyers who have been on the forefront of these fights for trans people have seen this kind of blitz of cases targeting trans kids, and they knew it was all about bodily autonomy. They knew it wasn't about protecting women, right? If it was about protecting women, they would be not trying to overturn Roe. If this was about protecting women's sports, they would be investing in Title IX, right? And investing in women's sports facilities and women's athletics. They are not, right? This is about something far more insidious. And this has been a long uh, groundwork that's been laid out, you know, really for, for decades since Reagan and maybe even before Reagan. So, It is concerning, Sam, because it's like we are witnessing a move towards conservatism in this country and the normalization of conservatism, the normalization of violence that Ilhan Omar and AOC and other women of color representatives have been talking about and raising the flag about. Ayanna Presley has been doing the same thing. You know, this stuff is becoming a part of our normal American life to the point where like that insurrection happened this year. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do. And I'm not really sure the American public is still that incensed about it. And, and it just goes to show you how far they've moved the goalposts and what we're really up against. Yes. And so knowing that, or feeling that, and I feel it too, I feel like the goalposts keep moving and people keep not caring enough. And when you get really mad and when you start really talking about it, everyone's like, can you just calm down? Can you shut up? Yes. You're really, oh, yes. like get off of it. But this is, <sighs> there is so much work. Yeah. to be done. There is so much. We are like climbing Everest all mm-hmm. over again to get to the midterms. I'm so worried about them. I am too. Boy, oh boy. How do you reflect going into this? Like I hate even, you know, even <sighs> kind of like in my world, we talk about the midterms and everyone around us goes, please don't. We just lived through a pandemic. And I'm like, it's 
extremely consequential. Yes. It's hard to constantly remind the people who would choose and who would like to not engage in these conversations that they are coming from a place of such comfort and privilege. Such right? comfort. Because yes. the stakes are not high enough for you in your immediate life, or you do not perceive them to be high enough for you, which is another yes. danger of, mm-hmm. of this society. So you think you can take your foot off the pedal, which just goes to show you, like, where is our capacity for empathy and how is it activated and who is it being activated for? So I think for for me, you know, these things feel urgent because I'm constantly engaging with them. And I know I need to take a break from engaging with the news. But at the same time, we need to be clear and full-throated about what is happening here and speaking truth to power. Right. People who do not always want to engage with this stuff, you need to do what you need to do for your mental health. But if it is just inconvenient or you just don't want to hear it, you need to ask yourself why don't I want to hear it? And who will be harmed from me disengaging at this moment? Because apathy led to Trump being elected. And we are dealing with the ramifications of Trump being elected still, even now. The specter of Trump's presidency hangs over Joe Biden. It's like he's still somewhat in the White House, you know? Right. And um, we, we can't forget that recent past because it is leading to a very disastrous future and the stakes have never, never been higher. Mm-hmm. It's, it is hard. I know people have been through a lot. I know everyone has the right to want to rest and, and take their foot off the pedal. But, and I also know that everyone has different reasons for being upset with the Democrats. And I, and I, right. and I get that too, to a certain degree, you know, we still need to vote for Democrats. And um, we still also probably need to be investing in local and community-based and mutual aid efforts more than we are investing in these institutions. And it kills me to say that. It really does. But I think that's where I've come around to. I don't know where your head is at on all of this, though. Yeah. I mean, when you weigh everything, you know, you're just like weighing all of these big issues. And it's it's hard to like, it's... (sighs) It's very difficult because I feel like the Democratic Party does not represent, you know, a lot of people in that party don't represent how I think or feel. Yeah. I feel like my, I I mean, everything that you're saying, I I definitely feel that. And yet we could be in a much worse place. We have to be very careful Mm -hmm. communicating, making a strong case, bringing people into this conversation. Like, I don't know. I'm sweating just thinking about it. Listen, I think voting is the least we can do and people make it, it to seem like it's the most we can do. And so I, it's like, I need both things to be true and I need yeah. us to not discourage people from going to the polls, especially if that will make them feel better. Yeah. And I, again, I'm not going to tell everyone to go to the polls. It's not my it's not my place to do that for, for everyone's individual like rights and autonomy. You do what you feel is right. Of course, I will. I will. I guess, you know, I, I, I understand. Yeah. You know, I think with the abortion case, how we're seeing mutual aid groups across the country help women get access to abortion. Mm -hmm. And these are abortion funds that previously, like, I don't know, not all of us were donating to, not all of us had memberships to. That's going to be such a crucial bedrock of our activism in the future, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's going to, it's just going to continue to magnify. It may magnify to different elements of healthcare, different elements of LGBTQ rights, but like, that's the kind of stuff that really does excite me is that there are people on the ground who never stop fighting. Yes. And if they can never stop fighting, and if they are going to drive hundreds of miles to get one woman her abortion, then certainly I can spend $50 to make that trip easier for them, right? And those local organizations, for me, those community organizations who are defying all of the odds and defying mm-hmm. you know, all of the pressure against them to close and shut down, those are the people yeah. who are like the bedrock of American democracy. They you are. know. They are. They really are. Oh, just comes down to individuals. 
it just it comes down to individuals not giving up, like just not waking up every day and one foot in front of the other. Individuals who have an idea of what it means to be in community. You, you were talking about interconnectedness yeah. earlier. Yeah, That's the difference. American individualism got us Trump. American individualism got us people who say we don't need to wear our masks and our kids are yeah. being abused by wearing masks in our schools. American individuals who understand that like, if one of us is down, all of us are down. Yeah. That is the mentality we need to be embracing at the moment. It's, it's the kind of, yeah. We need to be like the fantastic fungi. We need to be our yes. interconnected. <laughs> yes. All of our microbes just communicating with each other just under the surface. Mm. I know you're I know you're partially joking, but I think that's no, such a good metaphor. I'm actually yeah. not. <laughs> like I it's mean, such I'm a not. good metaphor. It it really is. Ah, it was a really good documentary. I'm telling you, spiritual experience. I'm gonna watch it, I promise. I, I promise, swear to I God. As soon as I'm done with these finals, I'm back to like watching real things and and reading books that are not about jesus yes yes okay last question because we've been talking a long time and this has been great and i'm so (laughs) thankful to you do you think your childhood would have been different with twitter (laughs) oh my gosh sam if i can say one thing social media is not doing us any favors okay (laughs) okay you know, not that I don't love TikTok. Um, mm-hmm. my, I, I literally hear my fiance in the background, like laughing, watching TikToks in, okay. in the bed right now. But like the most disturbing thing of my time at Teen Vogue was watching the polarization of America happen in real time uh. and having a front row seat to it. And um, Facebook Oof. has an outsized responsibility in that. And I've been talking about that for years, banging my yeah. chest about it for years. Like whenever adults, especially people who are like 60s plus, if they ask me whatever they can do to get involved, I always say deactivate your Facebook account Mm -hmm. because it's, it's no good. It's just no good for us. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that the thing about a lot of our kids is that they, like you said, they are savvier about technology and they understand how to spot misinformation or things when they look bogus and thank God for that. That's not true across the board. Technological literacy and media literacy is going to be so important for our schools to be teaching and adopting as curriculum to help fight misinformation campaigns. But like a lot of the places we got to with this pandemic and a lot of the places we got to with this American political system is because of misinformation spreading. And it's not it's not like bad people you know, woke up one day and decided to believe all of these wild things. It's like stuff that has been trickled and fed to them over time and yeah. fed to them by people they trust and care about, aka their neighbors and their families and their loved ones. And that's a hard thing. It's kind of like, there's this Power Rangers movie where like Ivan Ooze is able to brainwash like half of the public and the Power Rangers have to save everyone and like wake them up from the brain fog. Yeah, That's the best example I can give you. It's, it's less um, cerebral than your fungi example, but that's what it feels like to live in America right now. It's like, right. you'll talk to people who you love and they're like i don't know about the microchip in this vaccine and you're like bitch what like what? when did you get red pilled you know what i mean so right yeah the the social media shit um be very very careful be mm. very very careful and if you're a parent listening and you have a teen make sure that you're talking to your teens about how social media makes them feel about their bodies and themselves the facebook report from the whistleblower that came out talked a lot about body image of teenage girls being you know disastrously impacted I know I'm a grown gay adult male and Instagram makes me feel terrible about myself every single day. So, uh, you know, if it's if it's hitting me, it's certainly hitting women and especially young women a lot harder. And so, yeah, those are just important things for us to be talking about. Media literacy, media literacy. That's your next doctorate. Okay. 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 I could do that. That's your next podcast. That's your next field of study because I agree with you. Media literacy. Yeah. Too many grown ass adults in this country who can't discern fact from fiction yeah and have not a healthy enough level of skepticism 
Okay. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Boy. And yeah, Jay Rosen from NYU is great mm-hmm. on this stuff. If you ever, he's, yeah, no, yeah, he's, he's great. wonderful. He's, he's wonderful. Awesome. Oh my god! Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. I feel like that was and really heavy. It was, but I, I, I don't know. I was here for it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry, good. I made you go there, and you're like, no, I just want to. <laughs> You're like, I had an hour off from my all my work and then no, you made it's me fine. Up. I feel like I dumped it all on you. As long as no. it, as long as you're good with it, I'm, we both were consenting adults in this in this exchange. Two consenting adults, and I loved every <laughs> minute of it. And I think you're great. Likewise. And I hope you get through all of your work, all of your schoolwork, and I hope you have a real true break where you can get lost in a couple of days of just like being I'm unscheduled. Totally going to. Great. Thank you. And I want to say you. Thank you for everything you do. And thank you for not being quiet, especially when people have been consistently trying to shut you up. You are you are a force to be reckoned with. Oh, and I really boy. appreciate you. So thank you for having me. Two forces right here. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. We'll be back shortly. Oh, my God. That was a great conversation i just he is wonderful i love any conversation when you start talking about hot jesus <laughs> i love hot Je- you know hot yeah. jesus i'm telling you i had no jesus. idea that there was like a actual concerted effort to make him hotter that was crazy yeah well they he has a six pack. Mission accomplished. I mean, mission accomplished. They did it. They did it. Praise the Lord. He absolutely was oiled up and has a six pack. Well, uh, as you know, and as you talked about, Philip helped revolutionize Teen Vogue, and it turned into a journalistic powerhouse with yes. substantial articles about news and politics, and not just for teens. As we yeah. know, we read them all the time. Can you tell if the following headlines are from Teen Vogue or the New York Times? Okay. Um, Okay. Fashion industry emissions are a focus for Congressman Ro Khanna. Hmm. I'm going to guess that that's Teen Vogue. That is, that is correct. (laughs) Is that, it was Teen Vogue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. That feels like Teen Vogue. Okay. Here's another one. Uh, Megan wins legal battle against the male on Sunday. Oh, uh, I feel like that was the Times. Did I just see that article? That is correct. Yeah, it's okay. New York Times. You okay. got a good mm-hmm. uh, memory. Okay. Do read it. All right. What okay. about this? The year in emojis. Oh, that's the Times. That was, I've just read it. that's the failing new york times that's the new york times no i mean i didn't sorry i didn't read it i saw the headline and then i did not click on it that sounds like like, the new york times yeah i'm like i don't give a flying fuck about this i know the year in my emojis i know what that looks like (laughs) i'd rather that one be published (laughs) yeah maybe not Okay. Okay. Uh, student workers of Columbia are running the biggest ongoing U.S. labor strike. Oh, I th- feel like that could be Teen Vogue. It is Teen Vogue. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, last but not least, mm-hmm. with political memes, the medium matters. Hmm. With political memes, the medium matters. <laughs> I'm going to guess New York Times, but I could go either way. 
Yeah, New York Times. Wow. Can't get anything past you. <laughs> Got 100%. I've passed. <laughs> I'm a Catholic school girl, and I passed. I got all the check marks. I got a gold well, star. Well, you had hot Jesus helping you, so. <laughs> uh, I'm so, always so excited to talk about uh, <laughs> uh, sexy Jesus. Anyways, okay, folks. Hope you like my podcast. If you did, let me know in the comments. If you didn't, please consider hate listening in the future. Seriously, though, please rate, review, and follow Full Release and Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Spread the word about this podcast. In the meantime, keep sending us your comments and questions to fullrelease at sandby.com. They might even be featured in one of our special bonus episodes exclusively available on Stitcher Premium. Don't forget to tune into Full Frontal with Samantha B. Wednesdays at 10.30 p.m. on TBS, and we'll see you next Tuesday for another Full Release. This podcast is brought to you by Earwolf and TBS and was produced by Adam Howard and Svea Baron Reinstein with IT and technical production provided by Hitech. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by me, Samantha B. Okay, I'm going to go to the top. Great. My eyes are starting to get blurry. Uh-oh. Even okay. better. Mm-hmm.